Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 321. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy, ready for a fantastic show. Tell you what's coming in today. First up, we have some short fiction by Ken Liu called Effect and Cause. Then I do an interview with Dr. Linda Spilkler, who is the Cassini Project Scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Then the main fiction is The Infiltrate by C.C. Finley. Then we jump into Poetry Planet with our very own Diane Searison. Then right at the end, we have even more fiction, Before and After, again by Ken Liu. That is all coming up in today's show. So, like I say, a crack and show to get on with today. It's just fantastic. And I will be mentioning as well Sofa Notes. We've got some news over there on Sofa Notes. And thank you, everybody, that's kind of signed up for that. And it just gets you excited. You know, thank you so much. Again, I will be mentioning a little bit later on more information about Sofa Notes. So coming up, the first short story is Effect and Cause by Ken Liu. Ken's fiction has appeared in fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's Analog, Strange Horizons, Lightspeed, and Clark's World. Just you name it, he's been there. He's won the Nebula and Two Hugos, a World Fantasy Award and a Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Award, and has been nominated for the Sturgeon and the Locus Awards. He lives near Boston with his family. The story is narrated by Josh Roseman. Yes, not the trombonist, the other one who lives in Georgia, the state, not the country. I'm, uh, I'm not going to read out all of Josh's, because I read it out every time, but Josh, I just want to say a big thank you. I'll put a link on to Josh's site as well. He's, he's done some fantastic stories, getting himself in Asimov's, and just a genius at narrating. Josh, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Effect and Cause, by Ken Liu. Send me a thun. 
flash white blinding A. Brace for impact, says the computer. The superheated air cools. Out of the white light, things emerge. The instrument panels, myself in the chair, clutching the handholds, the jagged edges of the cockpit wall knit themselves into a pristine hole. T-1. Shields breached. Through the porthole, I see a silvery, fish-like shape depart. Already, it's kilometers away. T-10. The silver light winks out at the edge of visibility, like a dying star. Dashing about the cockpit, I frantically punch lit-up buttons to make them go dim. The anxiety subsides. I run backwards out of the cockpit until I end up in the galley. The klaxon goes off. Incoming. Theta six one five one four eight. Distance six five five. Velocity one o seven. Ignoring this, I sit down at the table and pick up a cup to spit scalding hot coffee into it. Then I proceed to vomit food onto my plate so I can sculpt it with a knife and fork into peas, carrots, an omelet. A shiver, and my thoughts flow forward again. What? Happened, I ask. Unknown. The computer pauses. System clock is out of sync with sidereal observations. It's like someone just took his finger off the rewind button. I set down the cup of coffee that had just come out of me, nauseated. We were dead. Affirmative, the computer hesitates. And impossible. An Azazen ship, I say. We know almost nothing about the Azazen, save that they have made repeated incursions into this region of Union space. My one-man sentry ship is our first line of defense. They seem to believe in preemptive attacks, I say. Hypothesis. We hit a temporal anomaly that briefly reversed the flow of time, the computer says. But if time has been reversed, our attack now would be unprovoked. I shrug. The military lawyers can sort out causality later. From the trajectory of the projectile that hit me, it's easy to calculate the location of the stealth Azazen ship. Subphotonic missile ready. The click from the big red button is satisfying. I press up against the porthole, watching flickering numbers on a screen is never as good as the actual explosion. T minus ten. The passing seconds seem to slow down. T minus zero. But there is no dazzling flare, no new star in the sky. Worries, senyam, yeast. The arrow of time. The missile reverses its course, now flying backwards, retracing its arc back to the launch tube. I rush around the cockpit, frantically pushing buttons. The galley. Spitting coffee, someone takes his finger off the rewind button. We've been through it dozens of times. Sometimes I shoot at them, sometimes they shoot at me. But always we end up back here, fifteen minutes earlier. They can temporarily reverse the local flow of time in a bubble for up to fifteen minutes, the computer says. Perhaps it's even triggered automatically when their ship is destroyed. I think the time reverser is designed to allow those in its field, including the Azazen, to keep their thoughts and experiences, I say, finally understanding. They're repeating the experiment to gather intel on our tactical responses. 
like running rats through a maze. Ignoring the computer's vociferous objections, I engage the manual override targeting system. I press the big red button. The click is satisfying. The faint trail of the missile approaches the spot in space where I know the Azazen ship is hiding. T minus ten. So close. My heart is in my throat. Nothing. A miss. Closest approach to target. Fifty meters. There's a faint trace of I told you so in the computer's voice. Time continues to flow forward. The Azazen were able to tell that I was going to miss, and they didn't bother to reverse time for my useless attack. No choice now. Set a collision course. Full speed ahead. They will simply revert. Do it! We dive towards the invisible target. The oldest, most desperate tactic known to man. But perhaps they cannot believe that I will actually go through with it. Flash white blinding A. The ship zooms backwards, in front of me a dark looming bulk that quickly fades against the stars. And then, the finger is off the rewind button. It's fifteen minutes earlier. A miss! Before the computer can finish, I punch a small black button. My jury-rigged secret. It sends a signal that shuts off the antimatter containment field in the subphotonic missile's warhead. A dazzling flare. And then, the most beautiful sight in the universe. The spinning, glowing vortex of a matter-antimatter annihilation explosion. Well done, says the computer. I gambled that the Azazen time reverser could not be triggered twice in succession. The missile was meant to come close, but miss. My suicide collision course was calculated to take exactly 15 minutes. When the Azazen reversed time's arrow, they brought the missile back to its point of closest approach. Effect became cause. Thinking backwards hurts, I say, as we continue to watch the spinning vortex. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ken's. That's the first one of the day. And Josh, big thank you as well, sir. Thank you so much. Now, I've got a real big treat here for you. I interviewed Dr. Linda Spilkler a couple of days ago. Linda is, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the Cassini Project Scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I was just, you know, I've got a little more there in, inside, in the, in the workings and, you know, we kind of fitted this up to this interview and it's just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? And to be quite honest, it'd be nice for Starship Sober to kind of celebrate, you know, in, on July, the, I think it's July the 1st, 2014 is the 10th anniversary of Cassini going into orbit around Saturn. And it'd be like I say, if Starship Sober, you know, get in and celebrate this 10th anniversary, you know, with like a few interviews from the Cassini team. That's the, the intention, you know what I mean? And what better way to kind of, to kick it off with the kind of, the, the chief, you know what I mean? The kind of first installment of this series with the Cassini project herself, Linda. And like I say, Linda, what a lovely person, you know, busy as hell and very kind enough to take the time out to kind to to talk to us, you know, and it was just lovely to be quite honest. So this is the interview I carried out with Linda. 
Now, Linda, I want to just get the audience just a little bit up to speed, you know what I mean, before we kind of get into kind of your niche. So who discovered Saturn then? Well, it turns out that Saturn was one of the five visible planets that you could see with the naked eye. So the ancients actually saw Saturn as one of the wanderers, and it was the outermost planet that they could see. Uh, The first person to really get a detailed look and discover the rings uh, was Galileo. In 1610, he turned his telescope towards Saturn. He saw what looked like, to him, two large moons on either side of Saturn, and he was the first to report this. Uh, Much to his surprise, uh, a few years later, uh, these moons, which were actually rings, disappeared because the rings were then edge-on and then reappearing a few years later. And it turns out that it was really Christian Huygens who figured out that uh, they were rings and not moons going around Saturn. You know, where would, if I was to try and, you know, do a little bit of research, where could I find Galileo's sketches? You know, are they on the internet there for everyone to look at? Oh, you can find lots of his sketches on the internet, yes. From his very first sketch, showing Saturn with the two, what to him looked like moons, you could find a lot of his material definitely on the web. And what, you know, going and the other way, what about technical information? Where would you recommend if someone wanted to kind of have a, you know, like a, a non-astronomer like myself, you know, to find out more detailed information about Saturn? Again, a good place to go would be on the web. There's a nice Wikipedia article on Saturn that gives lots of details about Saturn, the rings, moons, missions to the planet, and other resources about it as well. And also there are some good books out there uh, that talk about uh, Saturn and the planets. You know, this is the, the, the child in me, mind you, is, is kind of coming up with these questions now. So what would happen then, Linda, if you tried to land on Saturn? Well, it turns out that Saturn is really a giant gas ball made mostly out of hydrogen and helium, and it doesn't have a solid surface uh, like we have when you think of the Earth. And so if you tried to land on Saturn, you you know, if you had a parachute, you'd keep sinking lower and lower, and it would get hotter and hotter, and the atmospheric pressure would go up until it would get so hot uh, that you'd probably would, would just sort of melt uh, or be crushed in the atmosphere. In fact, uh, that's how we're going to end Cassini's mission, and I can talk a little bit more about that later, but we're going to actually put Cassini into Saturn's atmosphere, and the spacecraft will essentially, as it gets lower, pretty much break apart and then melt in Saturn's atmosphere. We'll talk about Cassini like a little bit later on, but that's... I'll mention that now. That must be... Do you think that will be a sad day for you when that happens, or will it be an exciting day? Oh, I think it'll be a sad a sad day in some respects. It'll be like saying goodbye to an old friend. I've worked on Cassini uh, really since 1988 when it was first a, a mission concept. And so I feel like a, Cassini is a good friend or a family member. And I'll also be sad in the sense that, that it'll be a, a time when the scientists will say goodbye to one another as well. And yet it'll be very fulfilling. It'll be kind of like watching... Uh, watching your child graduate from high school or college, you know, basically you've, you've completed a very important phase, uh, in this case, an important phase of, of Cassini in, in the discoveries made at Saturn. So it'll, it'll be uh, mixed, mixed emotions for sure. Let's get, get back to Saturn then, because this is the one that kind of interests me, I think, out of, out of the all, you know. What are the, the rings made of? Uh, the rings are made mostly out of water ice, uh, just water ice like we'd have here on the Earth. Uh, There's a little bit of a dusty material that gives them kind of their golden color, but probably 99% water ice, uh, 
They range in size from the, ti- the size of tiny dust grains up to large mountains. Some of the particles in the rings are basically mountain or tiny moon-sized. And these bigger particles actually open up gaps in the rings, one of which is uh, one of the most famous is the Cassini division. It's a, a large gap in between the A and the B rings, and it was for the scientist Cassini, who discovered the Cassini division, uh, that the Cassini mission gets its name. How do you, from a non-technical person, and forgive us, Linda, how do you, how do you know they're made out of ice? Well, we can, t- we can look at how the, the, basically the colors of the rings at different wavelengths called a spectrum. And in that spectrum, in particular, in the near-infrared, more red than you could see with your eyes, we see these very deep absorption features, what we call water ice bands. And so by looking at basically the different colors of light coming from the rings in the near-infrared, we can tell very clearly that they're made out of water ice. So come on, let's, let's talk about Cassini. This is what we've got you on for, Linda, you know what I mean? It's just, um, it's fascinating. Can, can you tell about the Cassini mission? What is this, you know, we mentioned the word Cassini here. What is the Cassini mission? Okay, the Cassini mission is actually a mission that's in orbit right now around Saturn. Uh, Cassini was first conceived the idea of it came around after the two Voyager spacecraft flew by Saturn in the early 1980s. And shortly after that, really just a couple of years after that, scientists got together and thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go back and instead of just flying by Saturn, go there with an orbiter and also let's include a probe we'd flown by Titan. Titan is a moon of Saturn almost as big as the planet Mercury with a thick atmosphere and we thought, wouldn't it be cool to carry a probe and with a parachute and land on the surface of Titan? So it, ideas were put together. And then in the 1990s, uh, the announcement of opportunity was put out for the scientists to propose instruments. And we started building Cassini. So you can see this takes this process of putting together a big mission can take a long time. Then Cassini was built and launched in 1997. Uh, Cassini consisted of uh, the spacecraft, the main spacecraft, and then the Huygens probe. The Huygens probe was supplied by the European Space Agency uh, that we bolted on, and we were going to we dropped off when we got to a chance to fly by Titan and actually make measurements there. And then it actually took us seven years to go from the Earth out to Saturn. And it took us this long because we didn't go directly Earth to Saturn. Instead, with a spacecraft like Cassini, about two stories tall, 12 different science investigations, plus the Huygens probe. And then we had two flybys of Venus, a flyby of the Earth by Jupiter, basically picking up a little bit of speed, borrowing energy from these planets, uh, basically being slingshot out and arriving at Saturn in 2004. And so we've been in orbit around Saturn almost 10 years, and we've had a chance to drop off the Huygens probe in 2005 and land safely on the surface of Titan and just make all sorts of wonderful measurements and new discoveries in the Saturn system. The Huygens probe, Linda, did that go smoothly? Did it? Did everything go all right when you came to, you pressed that, I'm guessing, like an eject button, and did everything work okay on it? Yeah, everything worked just fine. You know, it took a couple of hours floating on the parachute to get down to the surface. And we were very surprised that we actually built a probe that would float 
We thought that Titan might be covered. Uh, it's very cold on Titan's surface, about uh, minus 290 Fahrenheit, about 95 Kelvin. We thought that there might be a liquid ocean of methane, and we built the probe to float. And instead, we landed on a surface, what might have been a, a riverbed or a stream bed, and the probe actually lasted on the surface. The batteries were good, and the probe landed softly enough to keep sending back pictures and data. We measured the probe was warm from going through the atmosphere, heated up some of the surface, and gases came out. We measured methane and a number of different gases coming out of the surface. And so, yes, it was a very, very successful mission. We got great pictures. Uh, we've made movies of those pictures. You can find those on the web as well. And the biggest surprise was to find that, the uh, biggest surprise was really to find how Earth-like the surface of Titan looked like. We saw what looked like river channels, uh, we saw mountains, uh, and yet here Titan is, the surface is made out of solid ice. And so very interesting. With, with liquid methane, uh, methane plays the role that water plays here on Earth. You can have methane rain, you can have methane clouds, you can have methane ice, and even big methane lakes and seas at the North Polar region uh, on Titan. So how long did, it, how long did the batteries last for years? Uh, the batteries on the Huygens probe just lasted a few hours, and they got too cold to continue to operate, and so the Huygens probe uh, isn't working any longer. Right, so that's all you really got once it landed on, on the planet was just basically two hours' worth of data coming back. Right. As, as we were flying across uh, with Cassini, uh, we got back the data. And then there was still a signal that we, it kept sending to the Earth. And so the, the radio antennas on the Earth could actually hear uh, the Huygens probe for a while longer. And we could un understand more about the atmosphere from those measurements. Right. What, is there any, you know, this little probe that landed there, is there anything still left, do you think, of it? Or is it just being kind of dissolved and, and you know vanished um it's probably still there sitting on the surface uh, we actually watched as the uh we were taking pictures we saw sort of the shadow of the parachute as it went down and landed on the surface uh, maybe it's had, had a little bit of methane rain fall on it or something but uh it's uh, still sitting there on the surface and maybe someday if we go back with some kind of a of a rover or an airplane or a hot air balloon to float in titan's atmosphere we might actually get a look at it. That's fabulous. Tell us, then, Linda, where does the name Cassini come from? Getting back to the kind of the main, your main ship there. Right. Yeah. The name Cassini. We we thought about it. <coughs> Excuse me. The name Cassini comes from a, a scientist, Jean Dominique Cassini. He's the one that discovered the Cassini division. It's named after him. And so we felt it was appropriate to name uh, the spacecraft after him. And then the Huygens probe is named after, uh, after Huygens, who was the one that discovered Titan. And so it seemed very appropriate to name a probe going into the atmosphere of Titan after the individual who discovered Titan. And so can you just give me like a little basic, you know, what does a kind of equipment does Cassini carry now? Oh, Cassini uh, carries a suite of 12 different scientific instruments. Uh, those instruments can be grouped into, basically, you can think of the eyes and the ears, the senses of Cassini. Uh, the eyes of Cassini can look from the ultraviolet, much bluer than you can see with your eyes, all the way out into the far infrared and actually measure the heat coming from 
the targets that you view. Also on Cassini, there are a number of uh, fields and particles instruments that measure electrons and protons and those uh, the magnetic field around the planet itself. We have a cosmic dust analyzer uh, that can measure the composition of the tiny dust particles and in particular the E-ring, which is material coming from one of Saturn's moons, Enceladus. And then we have a radar experiment, and that's a, that's a great experiment because Titan has a thick atmosphere. It basically has like a, a smog or a haze that you can't see through in the visible with the cameras. And so we can use our, our radar instrument to probe all the way through that haze to the surface of Titan. And it turns out that we also have, uh, in the near-infrared, we, we discovered we could actually see through to the surface of Titan, looking in the near-infrared bands as well. You know, it, it strikes us, and this is kind of one of the main questions I've always wanted to ask, you know, Linda, is you launched it, you know, like you say, years ago. Is it not an antiquated bit of kit now? You know, are you wishing you could kind of somehow upgrade it? Oh, oh yeah. At the time, we carried the very best instruments that we could fly. And as we've made discoveries with Cassini, what we said is, wow, when we go back, next time when we go back, we want to carry an instrument that can look in more detail at the composition of Titan's atmosphere or, you know, perhaps even even better cameras or, or you know, more up-to-date kinds of instruments. But we really have, uh, for the time it was launched, really have a very kind of a high-tech, sophisticated set of instruments. And and Cassini is what's called a flagship mission. And that means that we have on it a, a complete, very good array of instruments to make measurements. And is there no chance, you know, can it be up, upgraded, you know, via software? Or is it, as soon as it took off, was that it? That's That's what you've had to work with? We've, we've made some changes in software. The instruments are very flexible that way so that we can change, for instance, the, the length of an exposure of a picture or, you know, how long you'll, you'll sit and, and take data before you, uh, with a, a spectrum, how much time you spend on a spectrum. So we do have programmable instruments and that's very fortunate because then we could, as we made, made discoveries at Saturn, fine-tune those instruments. Another interesting thing about Cassini is that Saturn is so far from the sun, it's 10 times further from the sun than the earth is, so there's only one one-hundredth the amount of sunlight out there. So we don't have solar panels. Instead, we get all of our electricity and all the energy that runs Cassini from three radioisotope thermoelectric generators, and that's just a, a fancy way of saying that we take the heat from the decay of plutonium and turn that into electricity, and that powers the entire spacecraft. And is that, is it still working today? You know, there's no kind of problems like that, or is it kind of being patched, and is it, you know, got like little plasters on to keep it going? Is it, is it working okay up to now? Yeah, it's, it's re- working really well. <laughs> when you build something to go so far away, you put in a lot of systems where there's two of everything. You know, we call it redundancy. And for instance, uh, Cassini turns with reaction wheels. At the spinning of these wheels, then they spin one direction, and then Cassini spins the opposite direction, and that's how we point the spacecraft. And so we have four reaction wheels. One of those was starting to look like it was wearing out a little bit. So fortunately, we could switch to the backup reaction wheel. 
Uh, we also have a, a set of little thrusters that we use uh, to maneuver Cassini. And basically, when the reaction wheels have spun up and have a lot of energy, we use those to what we call unload uh, the energy from those reaction wheels. And so we're on the a backup set of thrusters in one case. But uh, And then one instrument has been turned off. It, it basically wasn't working correctly, and it basically had a power short. And so we turned off the Cassini plasma spectrometer. But all of the other instruments, uh, the rest of the spacecraft, uh, lots of our computers, there's two of all those computers, and we still have complete redundancy or complete backups for all of the systems. So overall, the spacecraft is very healthy, operating very well, and uh, continuing to send back data. Is, you know, like for, for back on Earth there, is it like a shift system you've got there to look after all the kind of the data? Is it like a 24-hour a shift pattern you've got in for people working on this Cassini project? Well, the way Cassini works is we take science data for typically, say, 16 hours a day, and then we turn what's called the high-gain antenna, and that high-gain antenna uh I should mention, too, the high-gain antenna we use for radio science experiments. We watch as the radio signal goes behind the planet or the rings and can get science from that radio signal. So we have 16 hours per day to take science and then about eight hours to send that data back to the Earth. And then we send all of the individual data out to the various science teams. And, and Cassini being so far away, what we do is we build a computer sequence, basically a series of computer commands uh, that will last for 10 weeks on board the spacecraft. So Cassini has 10 weeks of instructions of when to point at Saturn, when to point at the rings, when to point back to the Earth to send back the data. And so we don't have to every day send up commands to tell what Cassini, what Cassini should do. It's very different in that way, just because it's so far away. Why Saturn and Linda? You know what I mean? Why not Venus or, you know, Jupiter? Why is it, did it have to be Saturn? Well, there are lots of missions to other planets in our solar system. And as I said, after Voyager, uh, we found all of these interesting things we wanted to know more about at Saturn, and in particular, Titan. Titan was so intriguing with this thick, dense atmosphere. And there were some thoughts that, in a sense, Titan is kind of like the early Earth would be, only it's just much colder. So there is astrobiological potential. There might be potential for how life perhaps could get started. And so it, it seemed like a very natural target. And so you'd had you know, flybys of Saturn with Pioneer and then two Voyager flybys. And so the next natural step was to go with an orbiter. It's kind of like if you, you go on vacation, you could sort of drive through a town and you'll learn a little bit about it as you take pictures out your window. But it's really great to go back and stay in that town, like say go to London and actually spend you know several months there and really get to know what London is like and the surrounding environment in the same way in the time we've been there with Cassini, we've had a chance to learn a lot more about the Saturn system. You know, it's, for me, it's all exciting things. But then, you know, I'm hearing about talks of budget cuts, which wouldn't even cross my mind. You know, like, say, you, you actually, you're getting there, you're doing the job. But there's, there's these talks floating around of budget cuts, and maybe this Cassini might be even knocked on the head. Is that, that's, is that a possibility, Linda, is it? Well, we're just in tight financial times, uh, and so there's less money, about $300 million less money in the whole planetary science budget. And so NASA needs, needs to make some tough trades. And what's going to happen is we're going to go through something called a senior review process. 
Every two years, we go through this process. We write a proposal. We do a stand-up presentation. And we put out all the great science we want to do in the next couple of years. And then NASA will decide which of its missions uh, it will fund and at what level. So we're, we're very hopeful with Cassini. We have a lot of fantastic science yet to do. And we're hopeful that we will get uh, our full budget uh, when that time comes after the senior review. So the schedule right now is the senior review, I think, is in June. And so hopefully by the end of the summer, we'll know more about our funding. And what we'd like to do is have funding for three more years, uh, ending our mission in 2017. I think one of the biggest discoveries uh, made by Cassini was that there's this tiny moon Enceladus. It's only about 500 kilometers in diameter. It should be frozen solid like an ice cube. And yet here's this tiny moon with jets of material. A lot of it is, is water particles, you know, water coming out, coming out from the South Pole. And it's salty water. We've measured the composition. It has carbon in it. It has hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, all of the key ingredients that you'd need for life. And so here there's a liquid water reservoir. It's kept warm. We're not sure exactly how. Uh, But there's a possibility that there could be life in that liquid water reservoir on Enceladus. And then also on Titan. We have evidence that underneath Titan's icy crust, there's a liquid water ocean. And so another place where there might be life in our solar system. And then finally, the astrobiologists there, they really think it's quite cool that maybe in the liquid methane, in the lakes and seas on Titan, there might be some very different kind of life that uses methane instead of liquid water. And so we're hoping that all of these exciting new things that we can do in the next three years, uh, flying through the plumes of Enceladus some more, uh, getting better views of Titan, seeing if those lakes and seas evaporate as it gets to be summer in the north, that all of our really great science will be what will help uh, sell our mission uh, for the next three years. What, Linda, what's, what's been some of the highlights for you for working on this Cassini project? You know, is it where you, you might get a call through the middle of the night and, like you say, you, you discover something really fantastic's happened? Oh, there are so many wonderful highlights. Probably to, to pick out just a few, you know, certainly the discovery of the, the jets and plume coming from the south pole of the tiny moon Enceladus, uh, the Huygens probe landing on the surface of Titan. I just remember, you know, being there and, and watching the landing being successful and seeing those first pictures come back. Tremendously exciting. And, and then I'm a planetary ring scientist. I think rings are really cool and that Saturn has the best rings in the solar system. And so after we went into orbit in 2004, after we completed our burn Saturn orbit insertion, we turned back and got incredibly detailed views of the rings. Uh, better, And I, I just remember just staying awake and just watching as each picture came back, you know, seeing the rings, you know, like being an explorer for the very first time, seeing the rings in this incredible detail and just seeing how beautiful they were. So the, for me, those are some of the highlights of the mission. And, and I'm sure when we get into these uh, end-of-mission orbits, that will certainly be another highlight. Imagine jumping from outside the main rings, jumping all the way across the rings into this tiny gap. It's only 2,000 kilometers wide between the top of Saturn's atmosphere and the innermost rings and just being so close to Saturn and all the new things that we'll have a chance to learn about the planet. 
It's, it's, it gives, puts the hairs on the on the back of my neck, and just when you, you listen to your talking, what you know when when you're discovering like the information's coming down, is it like the movies and you're all sitting around computers, or are you just in your own office by yourself and you pick up the phone or you're talking online to someone in another office, or do you, are you all together when the, the news breaks? Oh, for some, some of the events were all together. Saturn orbit insertion. We had all of our Cassini scientists here at JPL uh, being part of the activity, watching the data come back down. Same thing for the Huygens probe landing. Uh, since this was a European-built probe, everyone gathered together in Europe uh, to watch those pictures come back. And there were cheers. There were people hugging and crying and champagne. And it was just a wonderful celebration of a very successful mission. And I remember the very first Titan flyby, we were all gathered together in a room watching as those very first pictures came back and then the as the radar images were processed and also put up. So, you know, a lot of the very first time we do things with Cassini, we gather together. And even with some of the close flybys, we'll still get a group of scientists together. It's so much fun when a new picture comes back it's something you've never seen before. It's at high resolution. And people jump up and they point at the screen and they say, what do you suppose made that, that, you know, that long linear feature? Is that you think that's you know, tectonic activity? What about that weird-looking crater? And, and we just sit and we do sort of armchair geology or armchair <laughs> science right on the spot. And that's really so much fun. And the excitement is like just being the first one to see some of these pictures come back. Let me talk then, Linda, about it's Cassini's final days then. Is there a certain planned route it's, it's going to do? I don't mean like route. It, do you sit in an office and, you know, there's a certain structure it's going to go through be, once it starts to fall into Saturn? Well, we have, once we jump into that gap between the rings and the top of the planet's atmosphere, we have 22 orbits planned. Uh, it's going to be really exciting science. We're going to measure up close. We're going to get Saturn's gravity and magnetic field pinned down. We'll get the mass of the rings, which is related to how old they are. If the rings are really massive, maybe they formed at the same time Saturn did. If they're not so massive, maybe it was a, a comet or a tiny moon that got too close to Saturn and Saturn's gravity literally tore it apart and made the rings. Then, of course, you're going to get great high-resolution data, again, of the rings and the planet. And then our orbit goes almost out to Titan. And on that very last orbit, Titan's gravity gives us a little nudge that just lowers our closest point to the planet, and we're low enough then to go into the atmosphere and burn up so that we know in our current plan on September 15th of 2017, that will be the final orbit and we'll be pointing our high-gain antenna toward the Earth and continuing to send back data until Saturn's atmosphere just causes Cassini to tumble about and starts, you know, basically will probably tear it apart and, and starting to kind of melt it as it goes deeper into Saturn's atmosphere. So we do have a plan to get to that set of orbits in just the right geometry. We're going to use the next few years uh, to basically we're at high inclination now. We're looking down on Saturn's poles. We're going to go back into Saturn's equator, get those three great Enceladus flybys in late 2015, then walk our way, work our way back up to very high inclination and go into those series of orbits. We'll be inclined about 63 degrees with respect to Saturn's equator and then have our final orbit on September 15th in 2017. 
what what kind of time frame we're talking about then in the fall? You know, it's kind of final orbit, and then where it can you lose signal? Do you know? Have you got any ideas what that'll how long that'll be? Well, we think that once we're in that final orbit and we get very close to in very close to Saturn, these orbits are about a week long, so about seven days. And when we get in very close to Saturn, uh, probably when we first hit the atmosphere, it will happen very quickly. Uh, you can imagine, you know, like if you're a skydiver jumping out of a plane or something, or we're going to hit that atmosphere uh, going very, very, very fast. And so it will happen probably over a matter of seconds uh, as we go into the atmosphere. It's a it's a marvelous thing, and obviously we mentioned this before. You know, what I mean, you're going to be kind of mixed emotions on that day. Do you know what I mean? And have you do you, do you often think about it, or is it like a, a business and you've got to kind of plan exactly how it goes? Will your emotions get the better of you? That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, oh, I think it's <laughs> a very emotional time. I think that uh, there'll be probably lots of hugs and high fives. You know, yes, we did it. Cassini was very successful. And then probably a lot of reminiscing about, uh, you know, just getting together and reminiscing. I, very likely that we'll try and get the scientists together, you know, maybe here at JPL uh, for a chance for basically to basically a celebration of you could think of Cassini's you know life of Cassini's time around Saturn. And if you think about it, for a lot of us, you know, if you go all the way back to Voyager, I worked on the Voyager mission. I was lucky enough to be part of that as well, and then that wait from the 1980s until 2017, I mean, that's a big chunk of anyone's lifetime or anyone's career. So there'll, there'll certainly be, you know, lots of mixed emotions. And, and, you know, I think Cassini has really sort of stolen my heart. And so <laughs> it will be a, you know, it'll be a sad day to say goodbye. And yet I will be very happy for all of the successes Cassini had along the way. Linda, I'm, I'm interested in yourself as well. Where did you grow up then? Well, I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I was born in the Midwest, uh, spent a few years in Memphis, Tennessee, but basically I've spent most of my life uh, since I was about eight years old in California. So in that sense, I think I really consider myself a California girl, uh, that uh, those cold weather genes from Minnesota, I think, have, have slowly <laughs> disappeared with time. When it's, I go to a place where it snows, it, I think it's quite, quite, quite cold. And did you, you know, as a child, did you always look up? Did you, did you ever think that's, you know, what I want to do in life? Well, I remember I was growing up in the time where we had Sputnik launched and, and then all of the missions leading up to landing on the moon. And so I think I just grew up in a time where it was very natural to look up and think about the moon and think about what else might be out there and, and really wonder are we alone in the universe? And I remember I had uh, my very first telescope I got as a Christmas present uh, when I was in third grade. And I remember the first thing I did is I went out and I wanted to look at Jupiter. I wanted to know, could I see with my little telescope, it was like a little three-inch you know, refractor, could I, could I see Jupiter and its moons? And so I looked up and I, I think that that night there were two moons of Jupiter I could easily see. And every night after that, I'd go out to when when the weather was good and when Jupiter was in the sky and look at Jupiter and there'd be times when my mom would say, Linda, are you going to come in yet? And I'd say, oh, mom, I got a few more things to look at with my telescope. And so I think at that point I was really caught up with, uh, you know, at one point I think I wanted, I wanted to be an astronomer, but I think like a lot of kids my age, I wanted to be an astronaut too. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be an astronaut? And then when they built that telescope, 
on the far side of the moon, I could be one of the first astronomers to go up there and use that great telescope outside the Earth's atmosphere and use it to look, you know, look out at the universe at galaxies and stars and planets. So yeah, I kind of went through that phase. And, and then I, I, when I got to college, I decided to major in physics and also, you know, took astronomy, astrophysics classes, all those kinds of things. And when it came time to graduate and look for a job, one of the places I applied for a job was, was actually at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I remember getting here and they said, yeah, yeah, this would be great. We want to hire you. Uh, would you like to work on the Viking Extended Mission? Uh, Viking was sitting then on the surface of Mars. Or do you want to work on this new mission called Voyager? And I remember saying, well, where is Voyager going? I mean, I've never heard of this mission called Voyager. And they said to me, well, we're going to go to Jupiter and Saturn. And if we're lucky, on to Uranus and Neptune. And as soon as they said, going out to visit the planets, especially Jupiter, I said, sign me up. That's the mission I want to work on. And so basically worked on uh, Voyager and starting in 1977 through uh, pretty much the end of its mission for the optical remote sensing instruments. I worked with the infrared team uh, through the Neptune flyby in 1989. And actually, I was sort of in transition. I was starting to work on Cassini in 1988 as the assistant study scientist as we were thinking about what kinds of science would we want to do uh, when we go back, uh, go back to Saturn. And in the meantime, I actually decided, you know, if you're really going to be a scientist and you need to go back, I went back to school, got my Ph.D., and I got my Ph.D. using Voyager data of the ring systems of Saturn, uh, Uranus, and Neptune. What have you got anything planned then, Linda? You know what I mean, like future. You know, because like you say, it's going to come to an end. Or will the the Cassini project? Is there a lot of work? You know, that kind of tie up. You know, loose ends after it it crashes and burns. Oh, that's a good question. There's after the the spacecraft is gone, we'll have about six months to pretty much wrap up the mission. Uh, The scientists will have a chance to look at all those data that have come back in the last part of the mission. And already I'm thinking ahead to wondering, you know, we're, we're going to go back to the outer solar system. It might be a, a Europa orbiter. Uh, there's a program that NASA has called New Frontiers. Uh, there's a possibility maybe for a, a Saturn probe mission. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated with the rings. Uh, one concept would be to take a spacecraft back to the rings and actually hover above the rings and be able to take pictures and basically watch watch that intricate cosmic dance of ring particles in orbit around Saturn. I think that mission would be super cool. It's not on it's, it's high on my list. I don't know if it's high on NASA's list, but I think it'd be super cool to go back to Saturn and get in really close to the rings. You'd basically maybe using electric propulsion hover above the rings and and actually watch them in action. Linda, it's been honestly fascinating talking to you. You know, thank you so much for taking the time out and, and coming on Starship Sova and having this chat and just explaining everything, you know, because everyone's keen when we see it on the telly, but to kind of get an in-depth and detailed, you know, account of it, especially from yourself. Do you know what I mean? It's just been wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. I've been very happy to be here. It's, it's just lots of fun to talk about one of my favorite missions. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the, the, for me, though, the, the strange thing is, you know, it's, it's going to end for you. Do you know what I mean? And that must be, you know, that's what I kind of get over. You know what I mean? It's going to be a, eventually it's going to end. And yes, you, you might move on, but like you say, you've been with this mission for so long. That must be, you know, a, a really strange concept to kind of 
to live with, to know it's, you know, your, your favorite job is going to end. Right. It, it's tough. I mean, Voyager ended also. But at that point, like I said, I was transitioning to this new mission that would be called Cassini. And what we did after the Neptune flyby is we had a big party. We had a big party at JPL. Uh, you know, we had a band and we had the press there who had gotten to be like family to us. And, and we just celebrated uh, this wonderful success of, of this mission called Voyager. And so I think that uh, we'll do some of the same thing. One of the interesting things is not, not only do we have we worked together as colleagues, but I've made lots of friends, too. You know, friends with the scientists, friends with the engineers that uh, work on Cassini, have, have known them for a long time. And, and those friendships will continue. Well, Linda, honestly, like I say, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova and just, you know, telling me everything about it. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you. You know, it was lovely. I got an email back off Linda a few hours later, you know, and I kind of processed it all. And Linda had a, a chance to have a listen to it, you know, and she, she wrote back this email and it was just lovely. I said, Linda, I'm going to have to read that out. You know what I mean? She says, just so you know, Tony, you're one of the very first people to ask what it would feel like on the last day of Cassini's mission. You caught me by surprise and my answer fumbled a bit around. And she actually put in words, and I'll read them out now, what, you know, our true feelings would be about this kind of this last day on the Cassini mission. In thinking about it some more, I realised that I see Cassini like a real person, even like one of my children since I helped create the spaceship she became. Like all good sailing ships, Cassini is a she, and she would look like my daughters. I have watched over her since her birth and launch, and happily watched like a proud parent as she took her first steps in the Saturn system. Cassini is covered with gold-coloured thermal blankets that I picture as flowing golden hair, just like my daughters have. She joyfully dances through the Saturn system, swooping by Titan and the rings and making jaw-dropping discoveries, calling for help in the night every once in a while and growing older with the rest of us. The day I have to say goodbye to her will be a very sad one for me. It will be like losing a best friend, someone I've grown comfortable with, someone I know inside out, someone I will miss. I will definitely shed a tear. Now, I just think that's, you know what I mean, just something so special Linda, you know, sums it up great there where you just, it will be an end, you know what I mean? This thing's going to plummet in, the Cassini's going to plummet into the kind of the atmosphere of Saturn. And yeah, fantastic kind of data I'll be getting back. But you've got to just think of Linda there, you know, exciting one, one side, but that's it. You know what I mean? This thing's falling and burning and, you know, that's the end of it. So Linda, thank you so much. What a what an interview! You know what I mean. Just kind of, it's up there with Bradbury for me. To be quite honest, thank you, Linda. And like I say, hopefully we can get some more interviews with people on this project. You know what I mean? Celebrating the tenth anniversary of Cassini going into orbit. You know what I mean? That would be just fantastic. So fingers crossed. Next up is the main fiction, The Infiltrate by C.C. Finley. C.C. Finley has published half a dozen books and dozens of stories, been translated into several languages, and nominated for some awards. He says, you know, the usual. (laughs) Finley believes that we tell stories to create purpose and find meaning. The stories we tell about ourselves defy our identity. The stories we enjoy reveal our hopes and aspirations. And the stories that we believe without question hide our deepest fears. The story is narrated by Trendane Sparks. 
little bio for Trent. Born in 1970, Trent said he's witnessed the birth of modern science fiction and fantasy. Where we weaned on droids and dragons, cartoons and commercials, voiceover work was always in the forefront of his mind. Whether a bombastic log entry from a captain of a long derelict star freighter or the molten obsidian rumble of an ancient drake, voice work brings a level of joy not really readily found in any of his day jobs. And it's a great trend. What a fantastic narration. Thank you so much. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present The Infiltrate by C.C. Finley Every time I fall asleep, I wake up in a different body. Every time I wake up, I know one thing and one thing only. Everything that follows starts from that one thing, the only thing that matters, and what matters is who we are and who we want to be, because no one else could ever be the we for me. I snap awake and I know one thing. I am a hero. I am a terrorist. A wrinkled old hand shakes my wrist again. This is what woke me up this time, in this new body, this odd body, and because I am disoriented, I slap the hand away, try to jump to my feet to run, but because it's a new body, a body unfamiliar, I trip and fall. I hit the carpet, with one arm fortunately flopped under my face. My drool-slick cheek comes to rest on my wrist. A stuffed toy, a threadbare dog, spills from my fingers. My stomach wants to spill on the floor beside it. The same wrinkled hand reaches for me again. My head rolls sideways so I can look up the arm's bony brown length. At the other end is an old Indian woman in an orange sari with gray hair braided down to her waist. Worry furrows her brow and a tiny fear is planted in her eyes. She speaks a language I don't understand. I am a hero. I am a terrorist, I whisper. It's the one and only thing I know. Everything that follows starts with that one piece of knowledge. Even so, I have enough sense to mumble the final word. Because I've been here before, must have been here immediately before, in the body before. So I have an awareness, immediately aware of something in the airness. Voices buzz in half a dozen languages. Announcements in English and Spanish sound through an intercom. Feet rush past, fleeting suitcases on tiny wheels down long corridors. Something roars. The airport. Right. Definitely not the place to share that I am a hero, I am a terrorist. Too many civilians here. No one clear to know. Not even security. Our only real security will come from the IPAE protocol. Infiltrate, penetrate, assassinate, extricate. So I can't let them find out I have the infiltrate. Only five to ten seconds have passed. I slap my face, pinch my cheek with rough, uneven fingernails. Who is this person who chews their fingernails? Trying to shift from inert to alert, sickly to quickly, to remember who I am, who I was. I came to LaGuardia Airport in New York with a ticket to London. I want to go to England because the only person who can help me is Dr. Anna Backer at All Souls College in Oxford. I've read her research on identity. She can explicate the infiltrate, help me sublocate, eradicate. The old Indian woman snatches the dog and leapfrogs back like I might attack. She can't know that I won't harm her because she has no armor. My arm, the one that's down, it's thin and brown. I realize I'm a young Indian boy, an age between ten and fourteen. A fresh sheen of sweat forms on my skin. I roll over, pat my shirt, my pockets. I no longer have a ticket, an ID, any money. It makes me sick. It's not me, not funny. The old lady may have them for me, or the boy who was her grandson, who's undone, now that he's me. She steps back, her face more worry than fury. I could try to reason with her, 
Or, better, I could ignore her and try to find my prior body. An emergency cart. Red lights spinning, alarms beeping. My heart races. I fumble afoot, stumble apart. The cart parks one gate over where I notice a superfluity of transportation security administration agents. They're not transporting anything. They aren't secure, and they don't have agency. What they have is their hands on their hips, an inflated looks of self-importance, and a body lying on the floor. My prior body, alas, no body anymore. His name was Conrad Jersey, and he was a data warehousing expert being sent to England to consult for a client, or so I guessed from the papers I found in his room. He pushed himself too hard, lived constantly on the edge of exhaustion. I was only in his body for nine and a half hours. They won't be able to wake him up again. I'm sorry that he's dead. Not that he was a particularly good or bad man, but he could have been useful to me. Once I had identified him in the hotel airport last night, I had to move quickly to seduce him with the red-haired call girl that I had drugged to fall asleep at the moment I could no longer keep my prior body's prior body's prior body. Sometimes I have to wire the prior so it doesn't tire. Conrad Jersey needed fire. Goddamn Conrad Jersey. Damned, in fact, but no god, and no good, and his damned no good connecting flight to London through Montreal. I knew I should have tried for someone with a direct flight out of JFK. But beggars can't be choosers, and because I chose poorly, I'm about to be a loser. The old Indian woman is not in my way, but I knock her down just for spite and stroll casually towards the security checkpoint. My body is light on its feet, fleet, discreet, and full of energy. It's been a lifetime since I've been a twelve-year-old boy, a boy between ten and fourteen. A lifetime that I was in my own body, a dozen priors ago, a dozen times asleep, all since my breakout, the fake-out, the take-out that set me free from the training cell at Langley. TSA agents glance up as I pass, but for the moment they're more interested in the man who fell asleep in his chair and died— it's as if they know that airport seats are designed to be so uncomfortable that no one could ever fall asleep in one, and that way no one could ever fall asleep and die in one. And so what they've witnessed in finding Jersey's dead body is not only unfortunate, but ought to have been impossible. If they want to know impossible, they should walk with, talk with me. Behind me, the old woman shouts, Anand! A small Indian girl, maybe five or six, runs after me, shouting the same name. So that is my name now. Anand. Anon. Anonymous. Anonymous. I like it. Nearing the checkpoint, one of the TSA agents, an overweight black one with a friendly smile and a clear intent to be helpful, steps in front of me, waving her hands. Hold on, honey, hold on. If you go out that gate, I can't let you back in. I dodge past her and dash through. I hear the old woman shouting, and now the TSA agent starts shouting, and I could shout too as I weave in and out of the crowd trying to get lost because I know I'm in trouble. I've committed to a course of action with limited options and a concourse with... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Limited exits and zero hiding places. They have to be designed that way because of terrorists, of heroes. The intercom crackles overhead. Will Anandmer, could you please report to the nearest Transportation Security Administration agent? Well, fuck me. I duck when I see heads stretch over the crowds to look for me. I fall in behind a laughing family making their way toward the exit. A little boy, maybe two years old, in a Mets ball cap, stares over his mother's shoulder at me. His eyes are wide with fear. He sees. Little children haven't learned to be trapped in their own bodies yet, so they can see someone else who also isn't trapped. Don't fall asleep, I want to tell him in a sing-song voice. Don't ever fall asleep around me. I'll steal your body and throw your soul away. There he is, a voice shouts behind me. Three security guards have spotted me. They're spreading out to surround me. A large TSA agent speaks into the radio on his shoulder like he's a real cop. More will be coming, so I need to act fast. They're treating me like a terrorist, like a hero. Fortunately, I have been training to be a hero, be a terrorist. They don't know that I exist, and they don't know what they don't know, and so they can't see. I've got to go. I push through the family, pinching the mother with the baby so she almost drops him. Maximum screaming and confusion results. The father is carrying a bunch of bags and has some larger rug rats hanging onto his sleeves. He yells but has no chance to catch me. Instant traffic jam slams the corridor. Fleet, discreet, light on my feet, heads turning toward the commotion, turning towards me in motion from every direction but one. A young woman totters along on four-inch heels and talks too intently on her cell phone to see me coming up behind her. Even in heels, she's not much taller than I am. I bump into her and grab the phone as I run past. Sorry, I say to the stranger on the phone just before I hang up. Jimmy doesn't live here anymore. My voice sounds young and strangely accented. Poor Anand. I'm sure he had such a promising future. I hop down an escalator and hurry through baggage claim. An exit opens ahead of me like the promise of a better life, like a chance to make a difference in the world, and I sprint for it. A massive hand closes on my shoulder. The thumb screws down like a vice in the blade. Got him! Twisting free doesn't work, so I scream, Rape! What? I'm not! He's almost shocked enough to let go, but he doesn't. It was worth a try still is. He's trying to molest me! Rape! Rape! Somebody help me! Help! A whole crowd responds. A group of corn-fed white boys built like factory-assembled offensive linemen from a major college football team come over to see what the brown-skinned security man is doing to the little brown-skinned boy. I reach down, grab the guard's nuts, and twist them like a bottle cap. He squeals and lets go. I stagger away from him, shouting, Oh my God, he touched me, Mommy, help me! Did you see him touch me? Help! Everyone looks at him. I slip between them and run out the automatic doors, down the sidewalk, past a long row of windows. My reflection keeps pace with me, only the face with me isn't Anand Merkaji. 
It's the haggard face of another young man, starved for light and fed on speed, a face of need, the baby-faced volunteer who wanted to serve his country in the war on terror, the face of a zero of an error. I give the other me a little wave, a little grin, a whisper. Hi, Jimmy. Jimmy scowls back. Jimmy never smiles. Jimmy was a soldier who answered a call and went to Langley to learn the protocol. I-P-A-E. Infiltrate, penetrate, assassinate, extricate. It all starts with the I that is not I only, the I that can pass as a we. Jimmy was the prototype for the protocol, the only one of the recruits who could demonstrate the I into we who had the infiltrate. Then it's bye-bye, Jimmy. I dodge cabs and cars, skip across the road, literally skip across the road, since I'm a 12-year-old Indian boy, and Indian boys skip, don't they? To a parking garage where I scurry down a level, crouch low, and zigzag through a maze of SUVs. Off in a corner, I sag against a tire. I'm tired. Suddenly so tired. Anand shouldn't be tired, but I am tired. I've been on the run for three weeks through a dozen prior bodies, and I don't dare fall asleep. Every time I fall asleep, I wake up in a different body. Every time I fall asleep, someone ends up dead. So far, none of the dead have been a target I was supposed to infiltrate, in a group that I should penetrate so that I could assassinate to make America safer. They've just been ordinary Americans, innocent Americans, white and yellow, black and brown. They all fall down, the men and women, young and old, they all go cold. They're collateral damage collateral, which is like what you give a bank to get a loan. I think that the price we pay to the bankers is security to have security. Oh, my head hurts. I have to stop thinking when the things stop making sense. Sweat drips from my hair and fills my eyes with salty water. It stings and it flows into my eyes and it flows out of my eyes and it stings. When I wipe my forehead, I notice blood under my fingernails. Where did I get the blood? Dr. Backer! Bloody Dr. Backer, think I, in an English accent. English patient, English eager. I still hold the phone I stole, and I know Dr. Backer's number. I entered it with my sweaty, bloody, nail-chewed finger. The phone on the other end rings. I don't know why that surprises me, but it does. The Oxford Center for Neuroethics? The woman's English accent nearly makes me orgasm. I say, oh, oh, oh! I'm hilarious. I have charm. Charm disarms people, and a soldier, a spy, has to be able to disarm people. That's one of the reasons I was chosen to be an infiltrator. After a pause, probably a laugh, the woman says, I beg your pardon? Sorry, I need Dr. Anna Bakker. May I tell her who's calling? I need bloody Dr. Bakker right now! There's a silence on the other end, and I'm afraid that she's hung up. But a moment later comes the familiar voice, the soothing voice, the moving voice. James, she says. I don't like that name. When I was James, I was never James. I was Jimmy. I was Corporal. I was shit for brains. But Jimmy's gone. He's gone, Daddy gone, and has been gone. Ever since the day he woke up, I woke up in somebody else's body. James was a good soldier, but he died when he didn't wake up. He died an error of a zero, so I could wake up a hero, a terrorist. James, Dr. Backer says, You frightened our student. Terror reaches, but fear teaches, I say. Did the student learn something from being frightened? Tell me what she learned, Dr. Backer. The only reason I'm taking this phone call from you is because I'm worried you may hurt yourself or someone else. It doesn't hurt. I told you, it never hurts. I fall asleep in one body and I wake up in another. I feel sick when I wake up and sometimes I even throw up, but... I don't want you to hurt anyone else, James. It can't hurt anyone else. They just fall asleep and then they don't wake up. I told you, it doesn't hurt. There is a pause. Clearly, she's accepting the reason for what I say. 
I know it's hard to believe, but the logic is inescapable. James, she says finally, you know what you're describing is impossible. Why is it impossible? I shout. Consciousness is nothing but data, zeros and ones, in a biological wet drive. It's just like moving contents from one computer to another over wireless connection. You're not quantum physics, Dr. Becker. We're all part of a giant wireless connection called the universe. Those are metaphors. I don't blame her for saying that. I know they're making her say that, but I don't have time to let her finish. They're not just metaphors anymore. I have the infiltrate. My consciousness can jump from one wet drive to another, just like you write about in your papers. That's why I need your help. She pauses again. I agree that you need help. I can't control it, except by being close to the next body I want to jump into when we're both asleep, and that's no good. Doctors and officers at Langley, they don't trust me anymore. I need to control what I do so I can show them I want to be a hero so I can be a terrorist. A pause. I think you're confused. What? No, wait. I want to be a terrorist so I can be a hero. A hero, a terrorist. They're the same thing. Oh, God, my head hurts. Sweat is pouring into my eyes. My eyes are overflowing with sweat. James, she says. Her voice is a lull in the storm, a warm in the cool, a worm in the skull. She's worming into my skull. I don't think you want to hurt anyone else. I told you it doesn't hurt! I punch the car next to me, leaving a huge dent in its side. The car alarm goes off and I have to run, saying, See what you did! See what you made me do! See what you've ruined! See! As I run to the other end of the garage and up a level. People stare at me, but I ignore them. I have to run. I run to have. I'm gasping and stumbling, crying. Are you there, Dr. Becker? Please don't leave me, Dr. Becker. I'm scared. Dr. Becker, I... It hurts to breathe. Bloody... It hurts. Dr. Becker! I'm here, James, she says. Where are you right now? Why are you trying to trick me? I ask the questions. If you won't help me, at least tell me why they're trying to kill me. I did everything they asked me to do. I learned how to become the enemy so even the enemy doesn't know I'm the good guy. I can infiltrate. I have the infiltrate. You cannot project yourself into someone else's body. It's not projection. You erase the wet drive when it's sleeping and then fill it in again with someone new. When you project, you reject, you eject. That's not it. You empty, then you fill in. James, there is no such thing as the infiltrate. Then how am I sitting here staring at a brown hand of a twelve-year-old Indian boy? I stared down at my tiny brown hand, my shaking hand. Hold on, I got an idea, hold on. I'll take a picture of it with the camera phone and I'll show you. My voice shakes, that I figured this out, that I can kill her doubt with proof. Calm down, she says calmly. Breathe deeply, she says, taking a deep breath. James. I hyperventilate and speak emphatically. Don't call me James! Don't, 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 don't! The phone is shattered in a mess of plastic shards and metal scraps on the floor where I smashed it. My palm is sliced and bleeding. They just lost the signal, a voice says from two rows away. Feet pound on the concrete running in my direction. I thought I heard something down here, says a second voice. Who are we looking for? Somebody Homeland Security wants, but they didn't even give us a picture or a description. So what are we supposed to do? Arrest everyone? Eh, just kill them and let God sort them out. They both laugh. I scoot under a van. I'm lucky Anand is so small. And sweep in the phone parts with me just seconds before the two pairs of cop shoes trot past. Everyone is looking for me now. The radio squawks. And I don't understand the words, but the first voice says, Somebody thinks they spied him on the upper level. Then the feet pound up the ramp and they're gone. 
As soon as they're gone, I climb out from under the van and walk the opposite direction with my head down. A man in a suit with a carry-on slung over his shoulder, a phone held up to one ear and a key fob in the other hand, hurries along the row, clicking to find his car. The bland sedan beside me beeps. Things happen to me because they're meant to be for we. Suit bounces around the front of the car, saying, Yeah, hey, I found the rental. Yeah, right where I left it. So I'll call you back next week. Excuse me, sir, I say in my most plaintive voice as I approach him, holding up my bloody hand. I've just been attacked and I need help. Can you call 911, please? I see all the different reactions people have to me when I'm inside different bodies. If I were a man right now, if I were a soldier who went to Langley to have my ganglia rearranged, then Suit would be nervous to see me approach him, defensive. He would back away. Instead, he looks momentarily puzzled. That moment is all I need to step in and crush his windpipe with a finger strike to his throat. It's for your country, I whisper into his startled eyes. In this body, I can't reach high enough to get him with an elbow strike to the temple, so it's a heel to the knee instead. I make it look like I'm trying to catch him as he falls, but I smash his head into the door. A quick glance around shows nobody watching me. I love public spaces. They're so private. I grab the key fob and pop open the trunk and roll him in. It's hard work for my size, but I get it done quickly. I slip on his jacket and sunglasses to hide the fact that I'm twelve years old. His wallet, full of cash, and phone go into my pocket. This is good. People are looking for Anon and won't expect him to drive away. I pull the seat all the way up so I can reach the pedals. Then I put the key in the ignition. The Somali woman working the booth barely looks twice as she takes the ticket and the money. In moments, I'm heading southeast on Grand Central Parkway for JFK Airport. It's a good time to call bloody Dr. Backer back. This time she picks up the phone directly and I recognize her voice as soon as she says, Hello? Is this Dr. Anna Backer? You recognize my voice and I recognize yours. It makes me angry, but I control myself. Is this the Dr. Backer who wrote the article on thought insertion and moral intention? James, listen to me. I'm only talking to you because I'm afraid you might hurt yourself or someone else. I'm asking the questions here. Is this the Dr. Backer who wrote the alienation of the self and the epistemology of self-knowledge? James, is it? I scream. A pause. James, you know it is. Then how can you tell me that what I'm experiencing is impossible? The CIA trained me to insert my thoughts into others with the moral intention of penetrating terrorist organizations so that I could assassinate their leaders and protect freedom. Our freedom! You know that the authorities in Langley deny that. If they didn't do this to me, then how could I keep the knowledge for myself every time I hop from one body to the next? I couldn't. It would be impossible. Therefore, that proves that they did this to me. There's no way she could refute that. Because it's true. Let me tell you exactly what they said when I contacted them about you. I hear tapping on a keyboard. They said that Jimmy Vandeleur came to them from Army Intelligence for specialized training in psych ops, and that he... He died! I know what they say! I put a hand up to cover the side of my face as a patrol car passes me. Except I didn't die. I woke up in another body, which is what they were training me to do. Only it was the wrong body. He was an analyst who fell asleep at his desk, and they freaked out! More taps. James Ricordi. What about him? I ask. He was the analyst that was working in PSYOPs who disappeared. He didn't disappear. I had to get out because they were talking about shutting down the program because they thought I was joking when I said I was Jimmy Vandalore. So I went to get the Chinese takeout, only I didn't come back. James Ricordi didn't come back. 
There was no back for him to come to. He's gone. Gone, daddy, gone. Long gone. So long. Good night. I fell asleep in his body while I was driving and the car crashed, which woke up a trucker who parked on the berm. Only when he woke up, it was me waking up for we. The American officials say that never happened. They say they're still looking for James' recording. They're liars! Another long pause. Three weeks ago, I say, there was a car wreck on I-70, just past Goodland, Kansas. It was James Ricordi's car. I was I was going to Vegas. My brother lives there. I thought maybe he could help me. After I woke up in the trucker, a real motherfucker, I knew I couldn't get near my brother without the possibility of killing him too. I wouldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Sweat pours from my head into my eyes, overflows my eyes. It stings. So I started reading, and that's how I found you. More keyboard taps. Taps for Jimmy Vandeleur. Taps for James Ricordi. Taps for the truck driver. Maybe they are liars. She says finally. Finally, she says, maybe we should meet somewhere to talk. And that's when I know they got to her. I should have waited to contact her till I got to England. But someone in the government traced my calls to her. Now it's too late. They got to her, but they won't get to me. Thank you, I say calmly. But I've changed my mind. I have to take care of this myself. I throw the phone out the window and drive until I see signs pointing to JFK. I pull into the long-term parking lot and settle down in the back seat. It'll be a while before anyone comes looking for Mr. Suit or his missing rental car. Plenty long enough for me to take a nap. A groan emerges from the trunk like a drunk in a funk, and I realize I'd better make sure Mr. Suit can't ever wake up, can't ever fall asleep again, because I don't want to wake up trapped in a trunk of a rental car. I'll have to do this quickly while he's still concussed. I slip off his jacket, look around to see that no one's near, and pop the trunk. When he rolls towards the light, I toss coat over his face and grab his throat. Go to sleep, I say. Just go to sleep. But my small hands have a hard time choking him when he struggles, so I grope for the tire iron and smash his head. The struggle stops. I take the pointed end and stab it down through bone where his head is until his leg stops twitching. It's nothing personal, I whisper. You're collateral damage in the war on terror. Collateral. That's like what you give a bank to get a loan. You're just the price we pay as security to have security. My head hurts. I have to stop thinking when the things stop making sense, so I slam the trunk shut and it doesn't hurt anymore. I wipe my head automatically, but I haven't even broken a sweat. There's blood on my hand. One thing and one thing only. That's all I know. Everything that follows starts from that one thing, the only thing that matters, and what matters is who we are and who we want to be, because no one else could ever be the we for me. I am a heroist. I am a terror. In the back seat of the car, I settle down to fall asleep. Every time I fall asleep, I wake up in a different body. This time, when I wake up again, I want to be surprised. It could be in the body of a pilot on an international flight, and I could crash the plane if I wanted to, blaming some other country, and then we'd have to go to war. It could be the body of a cop or a soldier who empties his weapon into a crowded restaurant or office while quoting some other religion, and that would fan the fires of hate. It could be your baby, the one asleep right now in your stroller where I hide like a latent disease just as long as it takes to jump into someone else. Maybe you. Sleep well when you sleep. I'll be out here heroing, looking for a way to fight terror for you, prototyping the protocol. I will penetrate, assassinate, extricate. I have to. I have the infiltrate. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is CC Finley's. Thank you so much. And a big thank you to Tren for a fantastic narration. Lovely. Thank you so much. 
Right now then, Sofa Notes. Let's get into Sofa Notes for a little while there. Tell you what's coming up in Sofa Notes. First up, I've got the date announced for David Brin. David Brin's going to be the kind of the first of our kind of say big hitters that we do like one of these live interviews with. It's going to be on the February the 9th at 6 p.m. GMT. Amy is going to interview David. And if you've read any of David Brin's work, do you know what I mean? We've played a number of short stories on there, and David's been kind enough to give her a number of short stories over there in Sofa Notes as well. And like I say, that uh, his new book, Existence, what a, you know, what a book that was there. I listened to it in audio, and just one sweeping arc of a book. So if you like David Brin, like you say, he's on on the 9th of February in Sofa Notes, uh, live in here with our very own Amy H. Sturgis asking the questions. And that's not it, you know, like I say, come over, this is how you kind of support Starships over, and a big, big thank you, man, big thank you to everyone that signed up. You know, when you kind of set this away live and you think, well, I don't know, Henry, you know what I mean? Kind of, six pounds are kind of, it's a chunk of money, you know what I mean? And, uh, listen, I know it's a chunk of money, you bloody hell, pockets are empty. And, you know, you think, well, God, uh, and people are signing up, so thank you so much. You know, if you want to come over, like I say, if you join the Star- the Sofa Notes, you get all the Starship Sofas, like, back catalog stuff, all the books, everything like that, all the videos I'm selling in the shop, you get that for £6 a month, and then we're just bringing in constantly now more content. I've got an interview with, and it's actually on video as well, and a story by Gareth L. Powell. Gareth, as you know, the Akak Makak series of books that he's kind of well into at the minute there. I do an interview with Gareth, and like I say, Gareth was very kind enough to give her a story there, so I've got that narrated, and actually in e-story, like e-book format as well, and the video as well, so there's lots of ways to kind of enjoy that. So think about it, it would be nice, you know, like I say, each week I'm going to keep on adding stuff in there so you can come along, it'd be nice if you was consider that, that would be fantastic. And like I say, one more time, a big thank you to who, who's ever joined up. You know what I mean? You know who you are. Thank you so much. I will see you in Sofa Notes. So next up is Porty Planet with our very own Diane Severson. Diane's asked us to mention that this Porty Planet includes nine best poems in three length categories entered in the SFPA 2013 Porty Contest. So Diane... another trip to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. First, let me apologize up front if there's any background noise. It's been raining cats and dogs around here, and this is my last shot to record. The trucks and the cars in the background make so much noise when it rains. Not to mention that it's the daytime and I live in Paris. It's loud here. Anyway, I know, we've been here and in Contestville's sister city, Wardland, a lot lately, but I'm here to tell you that visiting these places, you get to hear some brand new poetry, vetted by the planet's most revered poets, in this case, Grandmaster Jane Yolen, and the citizens of Poetry Planet. Anyone's poetry can be nominated for the various awards, and anyone can enter the contest. You don't have to be a citizen. 
So while I didn't serve on the committee of the 2013 poetry contest run by the SFPA, I was asked if I'd be willing to podcast the winning poems as part of the awards package, much like I did last year. It's much delayed, but here it is. There are nine wonderful poems in long, short, and dwarf form that I'll be presenting to you today. The authors run the gamut. Some are well-known poets who have been around for many years. Others are up-and-coming yet familiar names. And a few are, at least to me, complete unknowns. In today's show, you'll hear, in order from third place to first, in the dwarf poem category of poems ten lines or less, third place... A Butterfly in Costa Rica by Mary C. Rowan. In second place, The Spell No One Said at Her Birth by Jennifer Schomburg Kanke. And the winning poem, Dorothy's Poem by Lorraine Shine. In the short form category, we have in third place, Wolf's Four Questions by Megan Arkenberg. In second place, The Martian's Wife by Helen Patrice. And winning the category, we Pay Our Fare in Apples Here by Megan Arkenberg. And the long-form poems are, in third place, The Dyson Tree's Promise by Bryant O'Hara. In second place, Hungry as Living Sorrow by Jenny Blackford. And the winning poem, The Girl Who Tipped Through Time by Robert Frazier. A Butterfly in Costa Rica by Mary C. Rowan He is reading wing systems theory when a fly lands on the page. Paper turns to liquid, flows over his palms, and evaporates in the space above his knees. Mary Rowan's poems have been published in Verse Wisconsin, Stoneboat, Solitary Plover, and the Wisconsin Fellowship of Poets Calendar and Newsletter. Mary participated in the 2013 Winter Festival of Poets in Madison, Wisconsin, and distilled from nature poems celebrating artist Ellsworth Kelly. Her work will appear in the forthcoming Echolocations, Poets Map Madison, published by Cowfeather Press. Mary blogs at poeticpossibilities.wordpress.com. She says about the poem, I wrote all the dwarf poems I submitted in one sitting, I read them at my monthly poetry group's critique, and someone asked, where do these come from? And all I could say was that sometimes I get in a zone. I do recall reading about wing systems theory and visualizing this guy reading when a fly landed on his book. I'm glad this one was selected, because it was also my favorite. The spell no one said at her birth. May that baby have steel in her veins so she can walk by any X in the sand knowing the bomb that's ticking ain't going to get her. Whatever shrapnel may come in the night, all her lights are off and her blinds are down. Just keep from her ears the insistent daily drippings of rain and leaky faucets. May they never find her cracks. May she never discover rust. Jennifer Schomburg Kanke is a fourth-year doctoral candidate at Florida State University. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Playads, Prairie Schooner, Court Green, The Tampa Review, and The Laurel Review. She currently serves as the poetry editor for the Southeast Review.
And about her poem, she says, I've been obsessed lately with writing poems about my paternal grandmother who passed away about five years ago. She had a kind of stoical strength about her that was her greatest asset, but that also created a lack of nuance in her outlook on the world that I think was a detriment to her sometimes. I wanted a world where that was physically manifest and where she could live and love that strength without paying the consequences. I wanted a world where I could protect her. Lorraine Shine is a New York poet and writer. Her work has appeared in Strange Horizons, New Letters, Hotel America, Witches and Pagans, and Enchanted Conversation, and in the anthologies The Moment of Change, Phantom Drift, and Alice Redux, a collection of stories about Alice in Wonderland. The Futurist's Mistress, her poetry book, is available from mayapplepress.com and online. She dabbles in paganism part-time and believes that fairy tales hold the key to understanding reality. Wolf's Four Questions by Megan Arkenberg Perhaps he wasn't even chasing you. Perhaps he caught your scent in the moldering leaves, and the stink of soap, of lilac and clean wool, turned his stomach. What then? Afterward, you wrap yourself in blankets or bath towels, and your hair on your shoulders is damp and cold and heavy as something dead. Every light in the house burns, the television sighs and whispers from the kitchen, and every shadow is something fluid and unfamiliar. Afterward, you wait. Why do you listen so intently for the catch on a lock that isn't there? The running is the best part. Everyone agrees. The running is magical. Branches snap and scrape, break and draw blood. Your feet slide. You catch your weight on raw palms and fingernails caked with dirt. Air burns your mouth. Your vision dances black. And still you are running. How did you get so far without once looking over your shoulder? It was never just a walk in the woods. You were searching for something, looking for beauty sharp enough to pierce your loneliness like moonlight falling through branches. What was it you expected to find? Megan Arkenberg lives and writes in California. Her work has recently appeared in Asimov's Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, and The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 5 and has tried for Best Short Story of 2012 in the Asimov's Reader's Award. Her poem, The Curator Speaks in the Department of Dead Languages, won the Reisling Award for Best Long Poem of 2012. Megan procrastinates by editing the fantasy e-zine Mirror Dance. Megan also submitted another poem which won the category. More about both poems after the one that won. The Martian's Wife by Helen Patrice After reading H.G. Wells I loved him most when he climbed down from the tripod machine, his skin glistening like wet leather, smelling of human blood. I'd go to where he squatted in the corner, his eyes lidless and staring, his body heaving in gravity, and touch the writhing skin of his back 
as he trembled in the air that ate at him. He tasted of red weed and old sand. I'd ease him back to the floor, but he could not mate me. He'd seen too much of war, of my weakened world. Even as he suckled at my wrist, he died. And I lived to take into myself all the microbes of his desolate home. Helen Patrice is a writer and poet living in Melbourne, Australia. Her work has appeared in literary magazines such as Mean Gin, Southerly, Westerly, LINQ, and newspapers such as The New Age and The Australian. Genre magazines such as Starlog, Pandora, Orealis, Interzone, and ASIM have published her poetry and fiction. Helen lives with her husband, son, three cats, and one brainless pup. In her spare time, Helen reads tarot, casts spells, dances under the Australian moon, and watches geeky and nerdy science documentaries with her husband. She says, My poem came from my fascination with Mars and with The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. I simply can't leave the book, CD, or movies alone. I come back to them over and over, thinking about Mars, Martians, war machines, and what exactly they wanted with Earth, and why they were unaware of bacteria. We pay our fare in apples here. By Megan Arkenberg. Everything in this station has a story, he said. The walls are curved in such a way that the echo of a penny dropped in the exact center of the tunnel sounds like an apology from your late father. If you crawl beneath the turnstiles in the wrong direction, the next train you board will take you to every place you've ever forgotten, and the ride will last for seven years. One time, a woman fell off this platform and touched the edge of a rail. She turned into a swan. Commuters find feathers in their briefcases, sometimes. They always smell like summer. About her poems, Megan says, Both of the poems were written during my stay in Washington, D.C. this June. I spent about half my time visiting monuments and the other half in a DIY writing retreat. My sublease was very conveniently located in regards to Starbucks and delicious Singaporean takeout. We Pay Our Fare and Apples Here grew out of eavesdropping on other travelers in the metro and combining personal experiences, caution signs, and informational posters with stray bits of fairy tales. Wolf's Four Questions came at a much more homesick moment. Between my own aimless wandering in a city where I had very few acquaintances and some reflections on the inexplicable motives of horror movie protagonists, I find that most of my poems, perhaps most poems in general, grow from some combination of personal experience and genre tropes, themes, or images. The Dyson Tree's Promise in the melancholy gravity of a scorched gas giant doing a cold, tight tango round a burned-out star, a tree rooted in an icy moon, bred for hard vacuum, basking in gamma rays, sings a long ditty to itself as it dances, as it dreams. 
An automated search heard its whistling, redundant and dense, full of melody and data. Our poet, a cloud-dwelling number cruncher, took a decade to decode it, understand it, then feel it, be at peace with it, and express it. This is the header from the Mecca Poet. Begin. I have never put my hope in any other, any other. I'm not tired, though I should be. My arms don't fold the way they used to. My hands have become filaments to catch lightning from a gas giant, and I am an artery, a tree, fractal. I have never put my hope in any other, any other but my mother star. I stand, though as a polyp filled with conscious sand, eyes straight on stalks to catch a wider spectrographic band. Arms raised in 360 directions, three dolorous dimensions. Feet knotted into a history of a condensed dead race. Into the intimate, the intricate, the life and the death and the breath. I have never put my hope in any other, any other but my mother star. And yet I hold out my arms. I hold out hope. Five trillion souls. A grove for a planet made of ghosts. I hold out our hope. I hold out my hope. I want to sleep, but I am always on. I want to close my eyes, but I am awake and I can never blink again. I want to blow out the fire tickling my fingers, but five trillion voices are laughing too loud. I want to breathe, but I am a closed system falling around a gas giant, falling around a white dwarf. I want to run, but my roots run too deep inside an underground ocean of a modest-sized moon. I want to walk away, but trees in space don't walk. So I hold out my hope, waiting and whistling and wailing. Come, use me for firewood, see and be warm, find me and warm me. Speak, dance, drum, play, stay, fly away and then be still, and then be still. I hold out hope, howling into the void so no soul will lose their way because I did not hold out my burning hands in this night. In the wasteland where one tree stands, there is always, always the dream, at least the dream, of a forest. I have never put my hope in any other, any other but my mother star. I hold out trillions of hopes, pass them on and scatter them. In the name, in the spirit, in the terra firma of those dreams, I hold out my hope. Pass them on. I hold out my thousand eighty hands for all to see. I hold out my arms, and I hold out. I hold. I have never put my hope in any other. And I hold out hope. I hold out hope. I hold. I hold. I hold. End. In the bright, groovy gravity of a ringed gas giant doing a long, exact slingshot round a bright yellow star, a tree rooted in an icy moon, bred for hard vacuum, basking in gamma rays, sings a loving ditty to a lonely little forest as it dances, as it dreams. Brian O'Hara is a programmer, poet, and musician, not always in that order. Sometimes all at once. His most recent publication can be found in the online literary magazine iDrum Periodically. 
To listen to more of Bryant's poems and other audio pieces, please visit soundcloud.com slash Bryant dash O'Hara. Bryant lives in Stone Mountain, Georgia with his wife, Alice, two out of seven children and one out of two grandchildren. Bryant says this about the genesis of the Dyson Tree's promise. It was inspired over the course of two decades by three works, The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, The Star by Arthur C. Clarke, and Babel 17 by Samuel Delaney. Eliot's poem provided the first push. It provoked an existential response which gave rise to the primary image, a tree growing in a wasteland. The first version of the poem was earthbound and had only one narrative voice. It felt incomplete, so I filed it away for almost two decades. It wasn't until last year that I finally got what I needed to complete the poem's narrative. I had begun reading Babel 17 when I got the idea of including a second narrator, the Mecca poet. I had seen the star a long time ago televised as an episode of the rebooted Twilight Zone series. I had read the original story later and was trying to find it again to reread it when the final piece kicked in the Dyson Tree Orbiting a Dead Star System. The moral of the story? Don't throw away old poems. Hungry as Living Sorrow by Jenny Blackford He left town one night without even a text message. Her parents did their best. These things happen. He was your first. You'll find another boy, a better one. She didn't want a better one. She wanted him. But he'd disappeared into an internet black hole, untrackable. Don't ask about my past, he'd always said. Trust me, you don't want to know. His phone just rang and rang. Every day without a message brought another bruise to her battered heart until, squishy as a peach, fit only for the compost bin, it plopped from its unsafe cage within her ribs, down into the fetid tangle of her guts. Soon the flesh fell off the seed inside the rotted fruit. She could feel the heart seed pulsing, nestled among her pale intestines, hungry as living sorrow. She knew it couldn't be a thing truly alive, a child. They'd never, not that she hadn't wanted to, but he'd always said, we don't need that. Trust me, you don't want to go there. And he would kiss her again, his long tongue uncoiling tenderly into her mouth, and she would melt softly into him. Nothing was enough to fill the gap he'd gouged inside of her when he left. The seed deep in her guts was full of emptiness. She fed it bleakly, and it grew, squishy and sorrowful, out of its hard center. She knew her mother knew about her midnight chocolate raids, milk and dark, Cake and mousse, bar and slab. Endless chocolate. Chocolate was good. It was all she could remember ever seeing him eat. The thing that once had been her heart thrived on its bittersweet diet. Night by night, it grew and divided, grew and divided, filling her belly with firm frog-spawn bubbles. The whisperings of her myriad tadpole children disturbed her sweaty dreams. Father! We're ripening fast. When will we meet you? Where? She felt rather than heard his answer. Wait till your wings form. When you are fully ripe, 
The husk will spring open, and you will fly free. Our ship is hidden in plain sight, high in the blue. Meet me above the clouds, and I will guide you through the hatch. Up in their room, her deluded parents plotted. Drugs. Psychiatrists. She couldn't blame them. They meant well in their way. They'd never understood. She stroked her squirming abdomen with tender hands, dying to see her lovely babies, their tails lashing in the sky, their new wings drying in the sun. Jenny Blackford is an Australian writer and poet. Her long centaur poem in the Pedestal magazine last year was nominated for a Reisling Award. She has a poem in the latest Westerly, one forthcoming in Strange Horizons, and three forthcoming in Quadrant. Pamela Sargent described her subversively feminist historical novella set in classical Athens and Delphi, The Priestess and the Slave, as elegant. In late 2013, Pitt Street Poetry published an illustrated chapbook of her cat poems titled The Duties of a Cat. Jenny says, My inspiration for the poem was Perth writer-poet-artist Kira McKenzie's experience of terrible, mysterious pains in the gut. Despite careful investigation in hospital, doctors found nothing. What, I wondered, could possibly cause such pain? Though I'm sure that the source of Kira's pain was nothing like the poem. The girl who tipped through time hailed from pure black-haired Roma gypsies and from dark skinwalker brujas, also con women, and somnambulists, the golden bloodlines for a soothsayer, and for the gift of reading truth. But she found herself living by a dusty road near the beaches of Matakasham, where clouds hung like weighted curtains and sunburnt boys rode waxen boards, visiting her with drift glass and driftwood. Beached below her cottage of gray shingles and curtained windows, horse-headed seals gathered at dawn, their soot-black eyes looking expectant, hoping for a glimpse of her face. Only she kept the kitchen and hearth, whipping tall bushel baskets of stringy weavers of seagrass and wolfsbane threaded with flotsam, trapping the wishes of lost mariners. For she herself was both lost and at sea, having time-tipped from another century, stranded in this wasteland of days, trapped, with only one hope of escape, that of foreseeing by sea-worn stones. At dusk, she stalked the water's edge, chewed a bit of salvia divinorum, picked along like a sanderling, where the rounded glacial gravel lay exposed in thin beds. Some evening, she must surely find the right bit, the right keystone, with a crack made precisely on the day and exact moment of her temporal dislocation. Then she will rub her exile out by rubbing her thumb along the length of that line, opening an exploitable cosmic fissure, a way to time tip for home. This evening she found a carnelian, oblong and rife with inclusions. Upon reading its serial history, her exact dateline was lacking. She pocketed the near miss and moved on. At midnight, she stoked a driftwood fire against the back bricks of her fireplace, then tossed in the carnelian with others she had stored in her baskets, cracking them on the red-hot coals. 
In this way, she marked memories for an age as yet unfound. Robert Fraser works as the curator of exhibitions for the Artists Association of Nantucket. His oil paintings and etchings are in galleries in New York State, Cape Cod, and on the island of Nantucket, where he lives with his wife, Carol Lindquist, a nationally recognized basket maker. He attended the Clarion Writers Workshop in 1980. Some of his favorite other things, making scrimshaw, sushi, polishing beach stones, small boat sailing, mahjong, modern Americana music, and weather photography. He is the author of nine books of poetry and a three-time winner of the Reisling Award, as well as an Asimov's Reader Award for Poetry, collaborating with James Patrick Kelly. And he has been on the final ballot for a Nebula Award with Fiction, collaborating with Lucius Shepard. He is a Grand Master of Poetry, awarded by the SFPA. Fraser says, The location of the girl who tipped through time is a step back to the 1960s shoreline on the island where I live. Simple, cedar-shingled, white-trimmed cottages, possessed of wood floors tracked with sand and windowsills decorated in shells and old bottles. Madikasham is a valley near the local airport of low bushes and flowers, Japanese pines, scrub oak no taller than a man, and a sand road that leads past a handful of summer cottages to a pristine beach that looks out to the mid-Atlantic shelf. There's salt in the morning dew and airplane noise. I exist in a basket maker's environment. My wife, Carol, makes a living at weaving a basket that is specific to Nantucket Island the lightship basket. The baskets, woven on molds, originated on the various early lightships that were anchored as mariners' guides in the treacherous shoals around Nantucket from the 1850s to about 1980. That'll do it. Lest you get to pining for award land or contestville, I'd like to remind you that nominations for the Reisling Award are open through February 15th, 2014. If you would like me to consider your best poem for a nomination, please send it to me. You can find my contact details on the Starship Sofa website under Submissions. Thank you for joining me today, and thanks to Tony for giving Poetry Planet a place to extol her virtues. Next time, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled tour stop, Animals and Creatures, where we'll have a closer look at the fauna of Poetry Planet. Until next time, this is me, signing out. There you go. Diane, thank you so much for that. (laughs) Might have been a bit of a rush for you. Thank you. You got to do us anyways. That's lovely. So next up, and finally, we have Before and After, a little short story by Ken Liu again. And this is narrated by our very own assistant editor, Adam there. He's took to the mic, and he's got, the young lad's got some talent. And these two stories, well, all the stories, but you know, these two stories by Ken Liu. Wow, cracking, man. Excellent. So, the Starship, star, mm-hmm, him as well, the Starship Silver is very proud to present. Before and After by Ken Liu. For Jerry, there was a before, sitting on the train home from Connecticut, where he had been visiting his father, suspended in that agonizing twilight of life, in which he was unable to distinguish Jerry from Jerry's brother, 
Brian, dreading the next call to Brian so they could argue some more about whether it really was time to send the old man to that place in the brochure Jerry had mentioned several times already. Walking home the six blocks from the station in the red, late summer dusk, while checking the balance of his stock account on his phone, dreaming about quitting work someday when the number got big enough, but knowing that the number never would get big enough because Lydia and Jacob needed to go to college, and that place in the brochure wasn't free either. Turning up the driveway to his house, fantasizing how Beth was going to open the door and yell, Guess what, honey? and unveil a winning lottery ticket, for some reason, oversized, like those giant checks they have on TV sometimes. Remembering, as he inserted the key into the lock, that he still hadn't cleaned out the gutters, and Beth certainly would be unhappy about that, even if she wasn't going to say anything. And he really did like it better when he could see her smile. And seeing, as he stepped into the den, the blank faces of his wife and children as they gathered before the big TV, and thinking how odd a sight that was, because he couldn't remember the last time the family had found anything they wanted to watch together. And an after. Stepping back out into the driveway, where the summer breeze carried the smell of smoky grills and lavender and sumac, which was Liddy's favorite, and he and she had spent a lovely afternoon together to plant them, an afternoon he wished had never ended. And the sound of splashing pools and buzzing mosquitoes, gazing up at the darkening, cloudless sky, where the first bright stars were emerging, and the birds circled and danced like the trails of planets and moons and comets and satellites in that astronomy program Jacob was always so excited for him to see on the computer, searching and seeking for the silvery, otherworldly glint of the curved hulls of those ships that had crossed unimaginable distances to come here, ships limed by green lights and threatening to unleash sharp, pale blue rays of lightning that would become so familiar in the oncoming days, all the while noticing neighbors, neighbors who he had smiled at and perhaps exchanged a few words with here and there without knowing anything about their lives, their worries and fantasies, and the anguish buried in their histories and the layers hidden under their suburban and harmless facades, neighbors who suddenly felt very close, as close as members of the same species ought to feel when seen through the perspective of light years and parsecs and time that had slowed down. Neighbors stepping out of their houses, too, as they glanced at one another, looking in each other's faces for answers that everyone already knew would not be there, and then hearing the uncertain steps of Beth and Liddy and Jacob behind him, and realizing that there was no need for answers, only the desire and strength to endure. But the moment itself was a hazy blur. The TV screen flickered and figures and words scrolled on the bottom as the president spoke. Patience and faith, and God bless America against those incomprehensible images.
and Jerry would not be able to remember in all the following years, no matter how hard he tried, the moment when he finally understood that the world had changed forever and ever, like a sentence that twists and turns, accumulating the detritus of thoughts and feelings and fears and memories and yearnings, until one notices that somewhere along the way, a shift irrevocably altered its path and mood and tone, so that upon reaching the final, abrupt period, one hesitates, waits, suspends a breath to remember. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ken's Ken. We're going to see him cracking right out there. Thank you so much. And Adam, hey, 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 got it, lad, haven't you? Well done. Great show as well put together, Adam. Thank you so much. Wow. So there you go. I hope you've enjoyed this show. It has been kind of monumental. I think one of my little highlights there. You know, just to, to get Linda on, do you know what I mean? To have the two Ken Liu stories and C.C. Finley story. And actually, when I was writing, I joined and I forget what it was now. You know, I forget which writer's club it was. C.C., I think Charlie was the the kind of the, the, the look on you because you, you logged in. And it was the, you know, at that time, it was all kind of new, you know, logging into like a little workshop place. And Char, I'm sure Charlie was like the moderator, you know, the kind of who helped out that as well. So that was a few years ago as well. So there you go. That is today's show. Like I say, think about Sofa North. You know what I mean? We've got some great stuff coming up in there. And there's, there's amazing stuff in there already. And we'll see you there. So until next week, we'd just like to see you. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.